Lord God, uh, we pray that you can um, speak to us this morning and inspire us um, with what you have taught us through Jesus' words in Matthew 23, and also just give us a vision for what kind of people you want us to be. Amen. It's um, common knowledge amongst polite society that you're supposed to, at dinner parties, not ever talk about uh, politics, sex or religion. And it made me realise that I must actually belong to really unpolite society because pretty much every time I'm at a dinner party or amongst friends, we get into those topics. You know, um, we love talking about what's going on with politics And when we talk about sex, we're not so much like sitting around talking about our own personal sex lives, but the issue of sexuality and and things going on in the media and that sort of stuff is a huge topic. And uh, so, you know, I must be pretty uncouth. Um, People are really interested to talk about this stuff. Um, And especially if I'm at a, a dinner party where I don't know many people and I say I'm a minister... They're usually really interested to talk about religion, I'm, I, I, I find. The meaning of life, um, you know, the kind of philosophical questions, um, the clash of civilizations. All these topics are really popular at the moment. Um, so, you know, I, I've, I've mentioned it before, but Jonathan, the mechanical engineer at the end of the corridor uh, where the Merry Creek office is, he once a week will come in and talk to me about some major issue of politics or religion, um, usually. And, uh, you know, Maurizio, the cafe owner over the road, we're always talking about the kind of challenges of life and, and uh, you know, running a small business, all these kind of things. People love to talk about these topics. There are, however, a smaller percentage of people around uh, who are, I guess, a, a very vocal group who, when you get to the topic of religion, it's like holding a red rag to a bull, you know. Uh, there's like a, it's like you're pressing a button and there's an anger that comes over people. Um, these are people who respond uh, similarly to um, Stephen Fry, the way Stephen Fry did recently on television. You might have seen it going around on social media. He was asked on an Irish television show what he would say to the Christian God if, if he found himself at the pearly gates trying to get into heaven because Stephen Fry is an atheist. And his response was, he'd say to God this, in this kind of hypothetical situation, he said, he'd say, how dare you? How dare you create such misery in a world that is not our fault? It's not right. It's utterly, utterly evil. Why should I respect a capricious, mean-minded, stupid God who creates a world that is so full of injustice and pain? You know, that's that's angry. And um, I don't think most atheists are angry like that. I don't think that. But there are a growing number of people in, in, in urban Melbourne, in the inner north especially, who strongly identify as not religious and uh, for good reasons, I think, have big issues with the church especially. They're angry about the seemingly inappropriate interference of the church in politics and education. They're angry about the hypocritical and um, you know, uh, inappropriate behaviour of the clergy, the Catholic priests and the, and the child abuse. They're angry about the positions some denominations take on issues of sexuality and medical ethics. And perhaps they're angry because they've had a personal experience of hurt that's come from Christians. They've felt judged or worse. Well, I want us to imagine for one second a church that could start an enriching and positive conversation with these people. 
that we could talk about Jesus in a way that was alive and energetic. Imagine a church that has an open and charitable dialogue with these no-religion tribes of Melbourne's inner north. That's who I want us to be. And this morning I want to look at what Jesus says 2,000 years ago to the crowds and to his disciples about the dangers of religious legalism and hypocrisy and the crucial importance of being humble and servant-hearted as we relate to others. This will help us understand, I think, what it really means to have an open and charitable dialogue. And let me just say this. What we're not talking about is a bunch of motherhood statements and cliches about Christians being nice. This is not about that. What Jesus teaches us here, I think, I I pray, will challenge us to a more magnificent life. So maybe open your booklets uh, to the start of the Matthew 23 passage. And I just want to read a few of those lines out again and talk about it. Matthew 23, verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat, so you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. So Jesus here is talking to the crowds of listeners, some of who are his disciples. But he's talking about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who were two Jewish sects at the time, um, who had gen- thought of themselves as the genuine inheritors of the law of Moses. And they were the teachers and they knew, they, helped, they were the custodians of this law. They meant business and ever since uh, God gave Moses the law 1,500 years ago, um, a line of Jewish rabbis and traditions continued. And now in Jesus' day, 1,500 years later or so, these were the spiritual academics, these were the philosophers, these were the, the religious gurus who were telling everyone how to live. They were fleshing out the law, they were extrapolating it, they were adding new bits and interpreting it for the context. This is what they are doing. It was as if they held the academic chair of Professor Moses, so to speak, as it says in verse 2. Now you may or may not have picked up, but Jesus here is being sarcastic So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, waving his finger in in verse 3. Perhaps should be understood better as, seeing as they think they are so important, you better listen to what they say and do what they tell you, shouldn't you? But seriously, says Jesus, they don't even keep the laws that they tell tell you to keep. They are complete hypocrites. And worse than that, because the normal everyday Jews were anxious about keeping the law, Um, they just ended up feeling stressed out and burdened because they couldn't. They were burdened because they felt judged. They they felt unnecessary shame before God. And meanwhile, as Jesus says, these religious leaders didn't even lift a finger to try and live this way. So there's a lesson here for us as we think about what it means to have an open and charitable dialogue with the no-religion tribes of the inner north, which is this, religious legalism and hypocrisy and judgmentalism is bad. And that's kind of obvious. We kind of knew that already. But it's still relevant. It's still central to our discussion about the dynamics of Christians relating to secular people. Because Christians can think of ourselves as the authority on everything that is true and right about the universe and God. And as Christians, we think, you know, we have the Bible, we have the Spirit of God, we have God-inspired morality, and so you should do what we say. 
you know, there's some truth and there's some falsehoods in that. There's a kind of an attitude, the attitude is the, the falsehood. The looking down on others as if they are worse than you. Of course, as, as any Christian who looks down on anybody who, 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 can't, who doesn't live up to their standard, they are an automatic hypocrite. The Apostle John said in um, his first letter, uh, 1 John 1 verse 8, if you think you are not a sinner, you're lying to yourself. You don't even get what it means to be a Christian. Every single person on the planet cannot live a truly perfect, sinless, holy life. So you can't judge others for, for, doing what you could, for not doing what you could not do. This only makes people feel stressed out and burdened and judged, says Jesus. It's like tying up heavy, cumbersome loads and putting them on their shoulders. So at a basic level, the open and charitable dialogue about Jesus that we want to have at Mary Creek has to start with this position of not being legalistic, judgmental and hypocritical to people. And this includes being judgmental about their, people's moral decisions and beliefs, but it's also being judgmental about people's culture. C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, which is a book that we're going to have again, aren't we, Andrew? Yeah, yeah. We're going to have it for sale again this year. He said, an individual, this is on the back of your booklet printed, an individual Christian may see fit to give up all sorts of things for special reasons, marriage or meat or beer or cinema. I haven't given up any of those things. But the moment he starts saying the things are bad in themselves or looking down his nose at other people who do use them, he has taken the wrong turning. We cannot be people who look down our noses at others. Now, the thing is, us Inner North Christians are pretty cool cats. We think we're pretty good at not being religiously judgmental. We're cool cats around the GLBTIQ people. Say it like that, GLBTIQ. Notice how that acronym rolls off my tongue. We're not like those conservative, suburban, Christian fundos, are we? who screw the environment with their petrol-guzzling four-wheel drives. <laughs> See, I think inner north judgmentalism creeps in in all kinds of unexpected places. When it's to do with talking about the people in the boring suburbs or when people don't have the right politics. And there's even some paradoxical values that are in the inner north that, that contradict the espoused values. So... Um, Anecdotally, it seems that, um, and I think I might have mentioned this last year, but I'll say it again. It's interesting in the inner north, the schools seem to have a bit of white, what's called white flight going on. So where sort of the white parents send their kids to one school and the non-white parents seem to send their kids to other schools. And it's, it's a kind of a, we just want to keep our kids together so they can get a proper education sort of thing going on. And there's a lot of people I know that have got parents in these schools that say that that's, that's, not, that's not just my crazy idea, that that actually does happen. Now, you would think that in the inner north people would be really into or, you know, blending cultures together and, and uh, being kind of um, non-racist as, as such. And you could go on and, and explore other espoused values that are different to the actual values. Jesus said... 
Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's in Matthew eleven twenty-eight. So the church, and that includes us here at Mary Creek, should therefore be a community of people who, as the physical hands and feet of Jesus in the community, lift life's burdens away from people, not dump heavy weights on them with our confused, judgmental, cultural and religious issues. Let's keep reading through Matthew 23, verse 5. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and their their tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honour at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace and to be called rabbi by others. So the big problem for these Pharisees and teachers of the law was that the main motivation for their religious behaviour was not to please God, but to please people. To have everyone look at them and say, you're so good, you're so holy. and Because in that culture, it gave them status. They wanted everyone to see their good works. In the Sermon on the Mount, which is, you can read earlier in the book of Matthew, in chapter 6, Jesus made the same point when he said, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honoured by others. Truly I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So a great way to avoid being judgmental and hypocritical is to make sure that the only audience you have looking at your good works is God himself. God sees your good works and that's all that matters. That makes your good works all the more beautiful. Showing off and trying to draw attention to yourself and people sours those good works. I'll give you an example of this. When I was um, the the director of Mustard, the the leader of Mustard, Years ago, we used to have these fundraising dinners, and um, um, the idea was, you know, you get all the supporters together and have a big dinner and raise money. And um, each year, we tried to kind of make it a bit more exciting than the year before. And I remember going to one of the directors and saying, "Oh, it'd be cool if we could have like James Morrison and his <laughs> band play." And I was sort of kind of joking because I didn't think that we could ever get James Morrison and his band because I thought this would fit perfectly fit the mustard supporters crowd subculture. They'd love it. It'd be so pump up. To which um, that board member um, said, oh, let's find out how much it costs. And I went out and found out how much it costs. And it was like, you know, you could buy a car with that. And um, <laughs> this, this particular board member just wrote out a cheque, you know, and um, didn't want anyone to know, didn't, you know, wanted to just keep it private. Um, and so suddenly there we had booking James, I was ringing up James Morrison's manager, yeah, yeah, you know, the school's ministry, you know. Um, and, um, and then this person who gave the money couldn't even come to the evening, like popped in and then had to go. Um, That's gold. That's the people of God being radically generous. It's not letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing. That's what Jesus meant when he said that. That's what he's wanting the crowd and the disciples to live, not like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who are show-offs. It's about being humble. It's what happens when we find our worth in God and not in what other people think about us. 
Look at verses 8 to 10 about titles. Jesus says, But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth father, for you have one father who is in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you are to have one instructor, the Messiah. See, the only one who can sit in Moses' professorial chair, to use that kind of language that we have now in universities, is Jesus himself. He can do that. So that's that's the only person they should be looking to. He's the Son of God. That's where you get your status, the disciples, through your relationship with the Son of God, as, 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 as children of God. I loved it when the Archbishop of Canterbury, um, the new Archbishop, Justin Willby, was here late last year to commission our Archbishop of Melbourne as the kind of primate, it's called, of, of Australia, the head of the Anglican Church in Australia. He played down his Archbishop of Canterbury role so well. Like, he didn't dress up too much. He just was very simply dressed. He didn't go around with all the pomp and the gold and all that. And then when he got up, he just started making jokes about, like, not really knowing how to be an Archbishop of Canterbury and, you know, and how, you know, he played down the the, the sort of stuffy Anglican thing. And everyone loved that. He, He was taking selfies with people out the front, you know, and just being a normal person. Um... And why? Because for him, I think it's Jesus who gives him his status, not being the Archbishop of Canterbury. So if lesson one that we had earlier was religious legalism and hypocrisy is bad, lesson two for this open and charitable dialogue is that we are to get our status as, as a loved child of God, not as a highly regarded and popular person in the community. If Mary Creek's conversations with the no-religion tribes of the inner north are to get anywhere... If we're to be trusted by anyone, we should seek to be the people who are not arrogant religious show-offs, but who serve each other radically in quiet, generous humility. There was this one time, John the Baptist, you can read in the Bible, was baptising with his disciples on one side of the Jordan, and Jesus was on the other side baptising people. With, on the, and, and John the Baptist's disciples could see it, and one said to John the Baptist, this guy doesn't know how to do his baptisms properly. You know, and um, John the Baptist's response was simple. He must become greater. I must become less. We've just got to keep saying this over and over again as we relate to people in our neighbourhood. He must become greater. I must become less. Let's look at the last two verses. Matthew, 11, uh, Matthew 23, 11 to 12. The greatest among you will be your servant. But those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. So in the kingdom of God, the greatest is the servant. In the kingdom of God, those who puff themselves up are humbled. In the kingdom of God, those who humble themselves are exalted. So here is an interesting dilemma for the Christian. Jesus also says in Matthew 5 verse 16 that he wants his disciples to let their light shine. Don't hide your light under a basket, says Jesus. Let people see your good deeds so that they will glorify your Father in heaven. So how do you be, not be a religious show-off and yet let your light shine? How do you do that? How do you not exalt yourself but humble yourself and at the same time shine your light? I think there's a kind of interesting thing there to think through. And I think the solution lies as we look to Jesus on the cross. Because this is the ultimate example Because here Jesus completely lowers himself to the point of death on the cross. He took the lowly status of a criminal. He was humiliated by the Roman soldiers and put on a mock crown of thorns. 
He was whipped. And yet, mysteriously, beautifully, and gloriously, in his death, Jesus was shining his light most brightly. The Apostle John said about Jesus, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. And then later in John chapter 1, he says, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus is truly magnificent. Now, if that's our cue, then what does this look like for us? Is there a role for the church to be truly magnificent in our Jesus-like humble service? And yes, I think there is. I truly believe that when the church is living as Jesus wants us to, when we are doing what he is suggesting to the crowd in this passage, then the church is magnificently glorious. Can you see how this is going way beyond just a Christian being nice to people? Open and charitable dialogue is hinting at the magnificence of the church that Jesus wants us to be. This week I had an interesting conversation with my good friend Kim Beals, who's a minister out in Sunbury. He and I used to work together at St Hilary's. And we're talking about the idea, Aristotle's idea, of the virtue of magnificence. Um, in the Nicomachean Ethics uh, that he wrote in Book 2. And he talks about this idea of the magnificent man. Now, in case you didn't know, Aristotle, he's not a Christian, he's not a Jew, he's a Greek philosopher. But he talks about this idea of the magnificent man being the man who is given great wealth and then uses it to bless everyone else. Uh, you know, to use it to serve the public and to take people's breath away by um, doing commissioning art and public buildings and, and serving people. Now, Kim, Kim was suggesting to me this idea that maybe, maybe this idea actually is close to the gospel. Maybe um, there's this idea of the virtue of magnificence in the gospel, that um, not through money necessarily, but through um, the, the faith that God gives us, that we can shine magnificently when we step out in faith and serve other people humbly in that way that Jesus is talking about. This is true magnificence. And I think there's a lesson there, the third lesson. So if lesson one was don't be legalistic and hypocritical, if lesson two is get your status as a love child of God, not from other people, lesson three is that it is magnificent when disciples of Jesus lower themselves and point people to God. This is Jesus-like magnificence. This is the kind of open and charitable dialogue we want to have. Not just Christians being mamsy-pamsy, nice to everyone and avoiding conflict. That's not what we're talking about. It's shining. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, you might know uh, the pastor of ba- uh, Brunswick Baptist, Tree Nguyen, who's a friend of mine, who last year, um, he walked from Melbourne to Canberra. Now, he's a, a, a refugee from Vietnam and he came after the Vietnam War as a child. And he wanted to walk um, as a kind of show of solidarity to asylum seekers of Australia. But also, he was thanking Australia for accepting him. He was not being aggressively partisan or angry towards Tony Abbott, as some other refugee advocates might choose to do. He visited schools and churches along the way and talked positively with love about what God had done and, 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 and what the people of Australia had done in his life. And he suddenly was found himself in the newspapers and on TV as he walked from town to town dragging his boat, little little boat that looked like the boat he came on and it had wheels on it. And all the while, he pointed people away from himself 
back to God. As Tree dragged the model boat from Melbourne to Canberra, there was something magnificent about this. He wasn't exalting himself. He wasn't drawing attention to other people who say, you're the greatest in Australia. You're the great humanitarian. You are the Martin Luther King Jr. of Australia. He wasn't doing it for those reasons. This is what I'm talking about. The magnificence that we can have as a church. Now, over the next four, four, next four weeks, we're going to start to talk more, especially about our community groups. And we hope to have four or five groups can be part of our church life. The idea is that you would be part of one of those groups. And one of the main goals of the group, I think, is to live out the vision of our church. So my prayer is that each group will seek to have an open and charitable dialogue about Jesus with people. But even more than this, I pray that this group can go further, these groups can go further, and encourage each other towards this magnificence shining in the community. Let's pray that these groups can be transformative groups, and we'll talk about what that looks like in coming weeks. We should expand and amplify what an open and charitable dialogue about Jesus means. We should expand it to include the whole humble, non-judgmental, non-hypocritical, generous, servant-hearted attitude where we lower ourselves and raise up Jesus, where we seek to shine our light so that others will see God and glorify him. Open and charitable does not mean avoiding conflict or being vanilla. It means the imitation of Christ. It means building up the world. It means radical generosity. It means being peacemakers. It means fighting for justice. It means the magnificence of bringing the life-changing, glorious forgiveness and salvation of Jesus to the world. Let's pray for that. Lord God, we pray that you give us that energy and that power from your Holy Spirit um, to live uh, as transformed people and to shine in in the community. We pray that you can help us to work through the issues that, that we might have, the structural, the programmatic issues as we kind of plan and strategize as a church so that we can know how to make this become a reality for us. And we pray that most of all, you will be glorified. Amen.